Chapter 7 of Why is the Negro Lynched? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Why is the Negro Lynched? By Frederick Douglass. Chapter 7 How the Problem is Solved. But how can this problem be solved? I will tell you how it cannot be solved. It cannot be solved by keeping the negro poor, degraded, ignorant, and half-starved, as I have shown is now being done in southern states. It cannot be solved by keeping back the wages of the laborer by fraud, as it is now being done by the landlords of the South. It cannot be done by ballot-box stuffing, by falsifying election returns, or by confusing the negro voter by cunning devices. It could not be done by repealing all federal laws enacted to secure honest elections. It can, however, be done, and very easily done, for where there is a will, there is a way. Let the white people of the North and South conquer their prejudices. Let the northern press and pulpit proclaim the gospel of truth and justice against the war now being made upon the Negro. Let the American people cultivate kindness and humanity. Let the South abandon the system of mortgage labor and cease to make the Negro a pauper by paying him dishonest scrip for his honest labor. Let them give up the idea that they can be free while making the Negro a slave. Let them give up the idea that to degrade the colored man is to elevate the white man. Let them cease putting new wine into old bottles and mending old garments with new cloth. They are not required to do much. They are only required to undo the evil they have done in order to solve this problem. In old times, when it was asked, how can we abolish slavery? The answer was, quit stealing. The same is the solution of the race problem today. The whole thing can be done simply by no longer violating the amendment of the Constitution of the United States, and no longer evading the claims of justice. If this were done, there would be no Negro problem or national problem to vex the South or to vex the nation. Let the organic law of the land be honestly sustained and obeyed. Let the political party cease to palter in a double sense and live up to the noble declarations we find in their platforms. Let the statesmen of our country live up to their convictions. In the language of ex-Senator Ingalls, let the nation try justice and the problem will be solved. Two hundred and twenty years ago, the Negro was made a religious problem, one which gave our white forefathers about as much perplexity and annoyance as we now profess. At that time the problem was in respect of what relation a negro sustains to the Christian church, whether he was in fact a fit subject for baptism, and Dr. Goodwin, a celebrated divine of his time, and one far in advance of his brethren, was at the pains of writing a book of two hundred pages or more, containing an elaborate argument to prove that it was not a sin in the sight of God to baptize a negro. His argument was very able, very learned, very long. Plain as the truth may seem, there were at that time very strong arguments against the position of the learned divine. 
As usual, it was not merely the baptism of the negro that gave trouble, but it was as to what might follow such baptism. The sprinkling him with water was a very simple thing, and easily gotten along with. But the slaveholders of the day saw in the innovation something more dangerous than cold water. They said to baptize the negro and make him a member of the Church of Christ was to make him an important person, in fact, to make him an heir of Jesus Christ. It was to give him a place at Lord's Supper. It was to take him out of the category of heathenism and make it inconsistent to hold him a slave, for the Bible made only the heathen a proper subject for slavery. These were formidable consequences, certainly, and it is not strange that the Christian slaveholders of that day viewed these consequences with immeasurable horror. It was something more terrible and dangerous than the Civil Rights Bill and the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments to our Constitution. It was a difficult thing, therefore, at that day to get the Negro into water. Nevertheless, our learned doctor of divinity, like many of the same class in our day, was equal to the emergency. He was able to satisfy all important parties to the problem, except the Negro, and him it did not seem necessary to satisfy. The doctor was a skilled dialectician. He could not only divide the word with skill, but he could divide the Negro into two parts. He argued that the Negro had a soul as well as a body, and insisted that while his body rightfully belonged to his master on earth, his soul belonged to his master in heaven. By this convenient argument, somewhat metaphysical to be sure, but entirely evangelical and logical, the problem of Negro baptism was solved. But with the Negro in the case, as I have said, the argument was not entirely satisfactory. The operation was much like that by which the white man got the turkey and the Indian got the crow. When the Negro looked for his body, that belonged to his earthly master. When he looked around for his soul, that had been appropriated by his heavenly master. And when he looked around for something that really belonged to himself, he found nothing but his shadow, and that vanished into the air when he might most want it. One thing, however, is to be noticed with satisfaction. It is this. Something was gained to the cause of righteousness by this argument. It was a contribution to the cause of liberty. It was largely in favor of the Negro. It was a plain recognition of his manhood, and was calculated to set men to thinking that the Negro might have some other important rights, no less than the religious right to baptism. Thus, with all its faults, we are compelled to give the pulpit the credit of furnishing the first important argument in favor of the religious character and manhood rights of the Negro. Dr. Goodwin was undoubtedly a good man. He wrote at a time of much moral darkness, and when property in man was nearly everywhere, recognized as a rightful institution. He saw only a part of the truth. He saw that the Negro had a right to be baptized, but he could not all at once see that he had a primary and paramount right to himself. But this was not the only problem slavery had in store for the Negro. Time and events brought another, and it was this very important one. Can the Negro sustain the legal relation of a husband to a wife? Can he make a valid marriage contract in this Christian country? 
This problem was solved by the same slaveholding authority, entirely against the Negro. Such a contract, it was argued, could only be binding upon men providentially enjoying the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And since the Negro is a slave, and slavery a divine institution, legal marriage was wholly inconsistent with the institution of slavery. When some of us at the North questioned the ethics of this conclusion, we were told to mind our business, and our southern brethren asserted, as they assert now, that they alone are competent to manage this, and all other questions relating to the Negro. In fact, there has been no end to the problems of some sort or other involving the Negro in difficulty. Can the Negro be a citizen? was the question of the Dred Scott decision. Can the Negro be educated? Can the Negro be induced to work for himself without a master? Can the Negro be a soldier? Time and events have answered these and all other like questions. We have among us Negroes who have taken the first prizes as scholars, those who have won distinction for courage and skill in the battlefield, those who have taken rank as lawyers, doctors, and ministers of the gospel, those who shine among men in every useful calling. And yet we are called a problem, a tremendous problem, a mountain of difficulty, a constant source of apprehension, a disturbing social force threatening destruction to the holiest and best interests of society. I declare this statement concerning the Negro, whether by good Miss Willard, Bishop Haygood, Bishop Fitzgerald, ex-Governor Chamberlain, or by any and all others, as false and deeply injurious to the colored citizens of the United States. But, my friends, I must stop. Time and strength are not equal to the task before me. But could I be heard by this great nation, I would call to mind the sublime and glorious truths with which, at its birth, it saluted and startled a listening world. Its voice, then, was as the trump of an archangel, summoning hoary forms of oppression and time-honored tyranny to judgment. Crowned heads heard it and shrieked. Toiling millions heard it and clapped their hands for joy. It announced the advent of a nation, based upon human brotherhood and the self-evident truths of liberty and equality. Its mission was the redemption of the world from the bondage of ages. Apply these sublime and glorious truths to the situation now before you. Put away your race prejudice. Banish the idea that one class must rule over another. Recognize the fact that the rights of the humblest citizens are as worthy of protection as are those of the highest, and your problem will be solved. And, whatever may be in store for you in the future, whether prosperity or adversity, whether you have foes without or foes within, whether there shall be peace or war, based upon the eternal principles of truth, justice, and humanity, with no class having cause for complaint or grievance, your republic will stand and flourish forever. End of chapter 7 End of Why is the Negro Lynched? by Frederick Douglass